Welcome to NucleCast, the official podcast of the ANWA Deterrence Center. Each week, we bring you leading nuclear deterrence experts for a lively discussion on current topics. Our host is Dr. Adam Lowther, Director of Strategic Deterrence Programs at the National Strategic Research Institute. The views of the host and the guests are their own. Welcome back to NucleCast, and I am your host, that father. I am very pleased to have as my guest today, Dr. Brent Park. Now, you may or may not know Dr. Park, but if you don't, he is a man with a fabulous and respected career. He is a PhD from the Ohio State University in physics. And then he went on to have a respected career at the labs, do a lot of great work. And then was it, was it Los Alamos? Was a associate director at Oak Ridge National Lab? I got that right, associate director, wasn't it? And then he went on to be the number two guy at National Nuclear Security Administration. And so he has now left government and is doing some consulting. And I thought we would have a chance today to do a a discussion that we've never done before on NucleCast, where we talk about what it means to be a labby and some of the challenges and culture and politics that you have to deal with. And so with that, I wanna welcome in Dr. Brent Park. Brent, welcome to the show. Good to be with you. Yeah, the one minor correction. Uh, I got my PhD from Ohio University in Athens, Ohio. I'm a Bobcat, so but oh my goodness, it's it's all good. Uh, all right. Um, well, Ohio, you you know there would be a rivalry there. <laughs> Actually, I worked with the OSU people, and although I did my PhD work at Los Alamos National Lab. And so I, yeah, I'm actually uh, uh, glad that you're going to be asking uh, about the national labs and how they operate. So I think many of the people who rely on national labs may not know, you know, what it takes to operate at that, you know, wonderful labs within DOE and whatever else you may want to know. I'm more than happy to give you my my understanding. Uh, I retired from several labs before uh, uh, getting into the uh, government job. And now I'm out of it. I'm more than happy to uh, share with you my thoughts. So let's talk about the labs because you spent quite a bit of of your career at the labs. And so most people don't really understand that the national labs, because they're national labs, are actually government owned and then corporate operated. Could you maybe give us a, a, a sense of how does that system work? Why does it work that way? Why aren't they just government entities where everybody's a government employee? Maybe describe that, explain it. Sure. Uh, the, uh, so for us to discuss the national labs within the Department of Energy, we actually need to go back to the Manhattan Project days. And that's actually, uh, that's about the time when that we started thinking about what we now call national labs. And obviously, uh, I retired from Los Alamos National Lab. Uh, I will retire shortly. But uh, the uh, the important thing here is that the national labs are there to actually avoid SAP surprises. And I need to actually qualify all my answers. I'm going to give you a small slice of a theory, big picture because there is no way we can cover what national labs do and all that within you know 10 minutes, the time we may have. So important thing is I'm going to give you a small slice 
to give you a glimpse into how national labs operate. But back to answering your question, it's there to make sure uh, the, uh, we actually have national security solutions to improve and defend the national interests, right? That the fact that the Los Alamos, today's Los Alamos National Lab, for example, uh, they worked on nuclear weapons. I mean, the, you know, the first a bunch of people who went there, everybody knows about the history with Oppenheimer from uh, UC Berkeley. The origin is very important for national labs government entity back then, what we called uh, you know, Army Corps of Engineers actually asked Oppenheimer to say, hey, why don't you pull, pull together a team to work on this very important classified project? So the genesis of many of the national system that we have is uh, what's called government-owned, quote-unquote, contractor operated. Much of national labs actually operate within that model of government has mission to execute and it relies on uh, brilliant uh, technical staff and support personnel to actually get the job done. And to that extent, it actually is a really great model. And many other nations are trying to copy our national app system model to uh, actually uh, pursue the uh, SNP agenda for themselves. Coming back here, we have a lot of people working at 17 different national apps. Only one is government-owned, government-operated. That's the metal. Everything else is a government-owned, contractor-operated. And as it turns out, the companies that are corporate sponsors for operating these national labs, they actually have to create a separate LLC to help manage the labs. And there's actually hands-off required. That LLC is there primarily for the purpose of helping to manage that laboratory. So there, there are rules and regulations about corporate sponsors getting into the lab business. And you know, there's actually very stringent requirement as to what, uh, what gets to operate, help to manage the labs. If you look at the national labs quickly, uh, give or take, there are roughly about 100,000 people, 100,000 people working in these national labs. That's uh, you know, uh, PhDs, masters, students, technicians, contractors supporting. And as it turns out, from A to Z, anything that is very difficult for industry, anything that is really super long-term in terms of science, that's what national labs focus on. It's not something that an industry or a company could just show up and say, I want to do this, sure. right? Uh, is a lot of basic science work. Absolutely. Much of the classified work, including weapons research, uh, science and engineering, all that, requires government owning and maintaining uh, the expert, uh, uh, the, uh, the knowledge, and that it requires government to own it. And it does require smart people to come and work with us. So it's a really good combination. And I think it is where it needs to be and because it's a multi-program program, uh, uh, department, Department of Energy, Office of Science, NSA, there's a nuclear energy, there's an EERE, ARPA-E, I'm using acronyms uh, because of the short time we had, but that actually makes it real unique for these smart people to do different types of research. When you hire somebody, brilliant scientist, and say, you're gonna work on this project only, guess what? There is no way we can retain that person for a long term. So many of our smart people, including wonderful support staff, they get to work on many different projects for all of DOE and many other departments and agencies. And that makes actually our workforce 
even more engaged, even smarter, and they look at the big picture, right, for the nation. And obviously, you know, I can go on forever, right? I'm very passionate about how national apps work, and they are doing probably the work that nobody else can do. It's the largest R&D enterprise in the whole wide world, and we need to defend it, protect it, and nurture it. And we got to do everything possible to take care of these wonderful systems. Now, as we think about the, the lab, you mentioned the lab system, but as we narrow that down to sort of our, the, the core labs involved in the nuclear weapons enterprise, we've got Los Alamos is our original lab that Oppenheimer started. And then out of that came Livermore and Sandia. And then we have, you know, we've got Pantex and we've got Kansas City National Security complex, and you know, it's it's sort of grown. Can you maybe give us an explanation of how that system works, and you know, who does what within it? So we have uh, basically again, this is a hundred thousand foot view, giving you a small slide, a slice of how actually things work. We have uh, uh, the so-called the national security labs, like you pointed out, Los Alamos, Lepore, and Sandia, supported by plants and sites. And by the way, before I, I, we focus on those uh, entities, there are other science labs that provide very important basic materials research that is also part of the foundation and the backbone for weapons programs. So it's actually the community as a whole that provide uh, solutions. Um, I will not talk about too much, but we have a lot of uh, important partners, industry partners that provide the people and expertise and so on. Uh, we can say that for... Uh, Next conversation, but going back to uh, the community, you know, a long time ago, we had to build something. This is in the 1940s, something right away because of World War II, there were so many things happening. Right. There was actually race, uh, as historians would actually tell you, to get to that first weapon system. And of course, we made a huge difference after the fact we, that's how it ended the World War II. But back to the reality, uh, the this national security system went through uh, different phases, right? Building up and then taking things down and then making things more safe and so on. There are different phases over the last now almost 80 years, right? And through that, we actually evolved with the uh, changing environment. And as the, as a, the responsible nation that we are and the world leader, Every time we actually have, uh, we would have a chance to make it uh, safer and secure, we would take that step. And along the way, we actually had to separate things out a little bit and say, hey, you guys work on this topic. For example, Kansas City plant, but they wouldn't work on the, what we call non-nuclear components. Mm -hmm. And Sandia, you guys work on the engineering and putting the system together. And Los Alamos remained as a you know, physics lab working on the, what we call pits and other things and material science. Livermore does a wonderful job uh, uh, being a, a physics lab as well as engineering lab. That, that's my uh, characterization, by the way. That's kind of all you want uh, that we really love at Livermore, providing that important leadership. But coming back, there's a, what we call specialization. And we went through a period of uh, not being able to do any tests since 89, 90 time frame, right? So Vic Reese, and I think most of the audience uh, you have would actually recognize the gentleman's name, uh, one of the leaders, the leader who came up with the so-called stewardship program to make sure while we're not doing testing, we can actually guarantee and 
uh, ensure that our stockpile is safe and available, hoping that we would have never you know, need to use it. And the, during and that phase, we actually invested, the government invested a lot of money into modeling and simulation to make sure we can actually make the system safe for more enduring and minimize work. And you know, there are all kinds of things that actually happened with our technical workforce. And uh, by the way, this is uh, important to uh, uh, point out. It's actually the largely weapons program that led what is what we now call supercomputing or HPC. Oh, yeah. There are a lot of things, and I cannot mention everything that we have done. It, you know, we call it a weapons program. In reality, this is advancing your knowledge and expertise on not only materials, uh, computational uh, skills, everything in between. And that's actually what came out of our national labs. And do so when the national labs work on a lot of the basic sciences and they advance, you know, they develop supercomputing and that's useful in a number of areas. One of the big things that's important in DOD right now is sort of this idea of spinning in technologies and spinning out technologies. So do the labs play a role in, in sort of either spin in or spin out of technologies with the things that they're developing? That's actually a perfect question. Uh, I'll answer that in two different ways. One is we cannot slow down the basic research. As soon as you do that, your seed corn is gone. Sure. I mean, in five, 10 years, you're going to pay the price 100 times over. So we should never entertain that notion of, yeah, we can slow down to make things more operational. Then the country will pay the price 100 times over. That's not worth anything. Number, number two. As it turns out, national labs as a whole, they work with other department agencies, DOD, for example. SNDI does a lot of cooperative uh, research and operational support and all other labs too. So oftentimes what actually happens is agencies within the DOD system, for example, would actually work with our program managers at uh, DOE and the national labs and say, hey, we need support in this area. We need to operationalize this. We need to make this smaller, lighter, last longer, or whatever the requirements might be. And the, so our people who spend a lot of time doing the uh, DOE mandated research, as well as basic research, they would actually get to apply their skill sets to actually help other departments, starting with the DOD and other agencies, right? So in addition to us, I shouldn't say us anymore because I'm out of the system, DOE uh, researchers, technical people, turning their uh, product into more deployable systems, they actually do support and work directly with the uh, departments, uh, DOD in this case, in your example. So we can help operationalize whatever that they might need for field work. So as we think about, you know, I'm, I've been at the Stratcom Symposium and one of the, we had a panel this afternoon that was a panel of mostly graduate students. And there was a couple of questions about, you know, how can DOD uh, encourage more interest in the nuclear enterprise? And then, you know, sort of both, um, you know, the development side and then the operation side. And so as you think about the workforce across the labs and across, you know, in NSA as well, because you're a former senior NSA guy. Um, do you see 
a successful path? Because uh, I think I read here recently that the average age of a lab of a labby is over 50, 50, 55 area. And I'm, I'm sure, you know, I was a fed for a long time and the average age of a fed was, was above 50. And so I'm sure NSA has an aging workforce as well. Do you see a, a successful approach and path to sort of bringing in young people to replace these older folks, scientists and engineers that are leaving? And are we getting good folks doing it? That's an excellent question, and I appreciate the interest because that's really important because you cannot have a strong national system without great people coming in routinely, right? And uh, I'm happy to share with you our average age. This is my understanding. As of about a year and a half ago, when I was in the government still, that has been going down steadily, which is a good thing, oh, right? Yeah. And we've been hiring a lot of uh, what we used to call next generation. They are coming into our system. And although, uh, you know, in certain areas, we still have a hard time competing with the industry partners, for example, in the computational world, because, you know, these brilliant scientists out of, uh, you know, school, they can get a job in Silicon Valley, probably making two, three times as much as they would in international you know, labs. But we are actually getting the right people. They are actually interested in learning and contributing in the national screening space. And we're getting quality people. Do we, uh, could we get more? Of course, we could use more. But the things have changed over the last uh, 10, 15 years or so. Ever so briefly, I was actually a PhD student at Los Alamos National Lab in the 80s. That's where I did my PhD work and became a postdoc and staff member and became a manager. As it turns out, DOE, rightly so, actually has a wonderful, outstanding relationship with the universities, hundreds of them. And for example, I can actually talk about Los Alamos as I was briefed on the, their numbers before I left NNSA. And these are rough numbers. I don't remember the exact numbers. I think they actually have close to 2,000 summer students. And they have over 400 postdocs. They all come from universities. Sure. And yeah. the fact that you know, they could maintain this number and the number is... Uh, comparable percentage-wise, a little bit more. And the CMDI is a little different because it's engineering lab primarily, and many people don't go through postdoc. They became staff members right away, which is a good thing for engineers. But overall, our uh, attraction, if you would, uh, you know, recruiting rate is pretty good. And the talking about NNSA, again, my information is uh, dated, you know, about a year and a half. We actually hired a lot of people into NSA and many, by the way, we need the seasoned veterans, we need experts, we need mid-career managers, we need early career people, and we've been hiring left and right, up and down, and we actually have a pretty good success story, and many are from universities. This episode of NucleCast is brought to you by the Anwar Deterrence Center, whose mission is to educate Americans about the nuclear enterprise and strategic deterrence.
So as you think about sort of the DOE enterprise, the nuclear enterprise, and then, you know, there's that, you know, there's DOE, NNSA, the labs, and then over here is DOD. I mean, there's, there's this relationship that exists between NNSA and the labs, DOD and NSA, DOD and the labs. Do you see that relationship is, is working effectively or do you have changes you would recommend? I mean, because we're, we're, you know, really facing, uh, you know, an international system in which we have an increasingly aggressive China. We have a very clearly belligerent Russia and we may be called upon in the near term to build new warheads, new delivery systems, and develop capabilities rapidly because we have one of those moments where we, you know, we say, oh man, we, we're, we're sort of behind. And America's pretty good at it's catching up and catching up quickly. Is, is, is that system uh, prepared to do that? So overall, I think we have a very reasonable uh, tried and uh, proven system. And there are so many reasons why it makes sense to keep an NSA within DOE because, like we talked about, much of the basic science opportunity opportunities, much of other materials research, and you know there are so many things happening. Ability to work with other parts of something national labs is critical to maintain because at the end you need to protect your workforce so they can do the outstanding research and deliver on the, uh, these products. And the, something about DoD, I actually appreciate your question and your, you know, viewing uh, uh, the angle about how can we better team up with the DoD for operationalizing some many of the uh, outstanding research that DoD labs uh, have been doing uh, since forties. I think what we, this is my personal thought and idea, and uh, I would not hold anybody to it, but. It might be actually interesting for DOD to officially uh, create an entity that would actually directly work with a national lab system rather than units under DOD going down 10 layers and each of this office would actually call DOE headquarters and NSA or go to national labs. Coordination could be better. Not so much, you don't have to change the national lab system but in terms of DOD leveraging, getting more out of DOD national labs, it might actually make sense for DOD to establish more of an official go-between, not to create additional barriers, right? Yeah. right? Because uh, even good, with good intentions, you can actually make it even worse. That's not the purpose of doing something like this, but it might actually help make a more coordinated, uh, uh, you know, what I call partnership between two departments. And as much as I uh, love supporting DOD and I've been doing it while I was at National Labs doing research, I supported a lot of uh, DOD uh, units. Uh, I think it would be disastrous if you were to move a National Lab, anything out of the Department of Energy today. There is a more of a ripple effect that unintended consequences sure. that we're not uh, prepared for. It requires much more uh, uh, planning, thinking and assessing it's not just, oh, move this to that location. That is not going to, I don't think they'll work. So if I were to give you a genie and you could rub that, you know, that lamp and you had three wishes and you could make three wishes about the nuclear enterprise, change anything you wanted, 
improve anything you wanted, what would your three wishes be? So it's not about just the national security labs, like Los Alamos, for example. And I know why it has to be done this way. But the fact that our national labs, including weapons labs, they have to operate one year at a time is killer. It's disastrous. In other words, when you bring these uh, thousands of technical people and say, oh, now nah, we're going to do one year at a time, it changes everything, right? I mean, there is a hiccup. Uh, we, you know, this is not something we, uh, that we can fix, so I can talk about it right away. And, uh, you know, there's a, something called continuing resolution that affects the entire government system. Yeah. And, but our uh, research organizations are at the mercy. It's one of those. I mean, Congress has to do what it has to do. I appreciate that. But when you actually engage with researchers, this many people, and when you say, okay, now we're going to chop everything up into a 12-month period, that creates all kinds of challenges. And I think it is appropriate for Congress to say, we're going to review, we're going to actually say yes or no, we're going to give you a little bit more, a little bit less. But I know we actually have a system to do this. There has to be a multi-year view. When you give a life to a new program, it's not going to go away in two years, typically. And so we need to plan ahead and take a look at it. And uh, so this is uh, something that since I was at both uh, at the labs and I was at the headquarters uh, at the OE and NSA, uh, 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 there's a little too much uh, uh, transactional oversight. <laughs> And I know why it is necessary, by the way. So this is one of those, you, you know why you have to have it. At the same time, uh, you need to balance it. And uh, the balancing is done really well when you actually have the right people. And sometimes, you know, that's not what actually happens. And oftentimes uh, we have outstanding leaders and, uh, you know, whatever the structure that we have, they make it work. And once in a blue moon, you know, things don't work out as well. And I'm not sure what the solution might be. I don't think I have, uh, you know, all three wishes. But yeah, I think the important thing is uh, let's recognize uh, what they are and who they are and what they have been doing. And these guys, they actually believe in national security mission. Without that, you cannot last even a single day working at national apps, by the way. I mean, there are so many rules and regulations for you to lift one finger handling, for example, plutonium. Oh my gosh, you know how much training you have to do? <laughs> if you don't believe in the mission, you're not gonna last. That's uh, all the people, every single individual we have in our national uh, labs. And since we're talking about national security labs, like uh, weapons labs, you know, uh, they're my heroes, by the way. So if, you know, if we're, we're now at the end of the show and we have a couple minutes left, if you wanted to, you know, many of our, our listeners to the podcast are, they might be in industry, they might be military officers that, you know, it's a, it's a broad cross section. And many may not be very familiar with the lab system and NSA and sort of how the nuclear enterprise works. So if you were to sort of give them an elevator speech on the enterprise, and in particular, the DOD element of the enterprise, what would you tell you know, that broad cross-section of Americans about, about the enterprise. Yeah. So uh, the uh, much, uh, so maybe I'll give you an analogy. So, you know, if I use this analogy, which it may not be appropriate, but the DOD is more interested in driving a car, right? And using that as an example, I don't want to call it weapons. I don't want to call it 
this or that, but they have to have operational core. Now, how do you build it? There are industry partners, companies and all that who will put the system together. In terms of, uh, if I can stay within that analogy, one, you, to make the most out of that system within the car, whether it's car engine or tires or whatever it might be, system optimization, the basic science underneath that, and applied research that you have to have it, the bulk of that are being done at our national labs, number one. Number two, what's actually critical that we need to recognize is much of needed classified research have to be done within the government envelope. And that's what's being done at our national weapons labs. All right. Well, thanks for your uh, time here on NucleCast. And thanks to all the listeners. We hope you'll join us for the next episode. And again, I want to thank Dr. Brent Park, a senior physicist and longtime labbie who has uh, given us a great insight into how the lab system and, and the DOE element of the nuclear enterprise works. So thanks for joining us today.